another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Often I run into a prayer or a blurb from some religious article or magazine or book and I like it so much that I cut it out and I stick it in this little pink book that I have and when I'm looking for a little spiritual sustenance I pull out the pink book and I find one of the prayers or meditations or blurbs and I read it and hope that it will somehow center me spiritually and often it does during this particular tumultuous phase of history and the onset of the pandemic, the riots, the election to come, uh, I have found it hard to stay centered. Being an ordinary Catholic, I know I'm not the only one because I suspect most of us, both Catholic and non-Catholic, and nothing in particular, are feeling the stresses of this time and place. I have had this errant thought that I'm not particularly fond of having had, or that it will pop into my head again, that as I wend my way toward my dotage, my natural decline, since I'm of a certain age, not rushing it, don't think I'm there yet, still pretty sharp, but I do think I'm glad I'm not young. I'm glad I don't have to live most of my life in this world any longer. That's a horrible thought. The thing is, I've heard other older people in the past, when I was young, say that. Some of them said it about the 60s. Some of them said it about rock and roll in the 50s. But there is something to their concern, and I suppose to mine, that as the generations pass, and as we think we are becoming more wonderful and enlightened and technological, that in fact we are deteriorating, not improving. And then the age-old questions come to us all, come to me. Why am I here? Why have I been here? What is my purpose? And then I have to remember that as a Catholic, I inherently have to see my purpose in light of God, of the Trinity, of Jesus Christ, and his purpose and how I am to cooperate with him in his act of redemption. I refer to this often because it's hard to get my head around. I look around and I say, what's his will? And then I fear that I can't find it, I don't understand it, and maybe I don't have a purpose in his tapestry. Well, that's impossible, of course. The largest part of my career as a lawyer was as a prosecutor at the State Bar of California. This was an institution that investigated and prosecuted, where appropriate, complaints against lawyers for willful and intentional misconduct, meaning it wasn't just a mistake. And I remember when I began working there in the mid-1980s, I began to feel as if we were just spitting in the ocean trying to investigate and deal with lawyers, the percentage of which, given the number of lawyers in California then and now, wasn't very large, but it was it was like, in a sense, being a police officer, and you just see the worst in people. And 
I was complaining about this early on to my then pastor, the Reverend George J. Parnassus, now late Father Parnassus, and he said to me, you know, it's very prideful of you that you want to see your success. You want to see yourself hit the ball out of the park. And I found that stuck with me that, yes, I was expecting my purpose to be something that would manifest itself and there would be these great successes that I would be aware of. But in fact, the work itself and my efforts in it were more ambiguous. There were a couple of moments that I recall in which I felt I made a difference, but most of all, it just seemed like slogging through the muck of human frailty in which I shared in the last couple of days, apropos of seeking the will of God and one's purpose in life, I have been thinking of two prayers, one by Cardinal John Henry Newman and the other by Thomas Merton. Newman has become a saint in the last year or so. He was born in 1801 and died some 89, 90 years later just before the 20th century. And Thomas Merton, the second one, who was born in 1915 in France, both men were converts to Catholicism. I came to my fascination with Cardinal Newman after my fascination with Thomas Merton, and they tend to vacillate between one and the other, and some others as well about whom I'm sure I will talk during these podcasts. Merton was a fascination when I was just returning to Catholicism after a period of lapse because I was looking for Catholics, writers in particular, and particularly those who had journals because I had begun journaling myself and found the journals of others very interesting. People who had struggled with the faith because I was struggling with the faith. I wasn't really excited about those Catholic writers or saints or declared saints who kind of craved the idea of martyrdom or seemed so pure in the Catholicism who wrote these beautiful tomes about their faith, but things that I had not yet, and perhaps not even yet now, had come to feel. I had some familiarity with Merton from high school, I think it was, because I had on my list of required reading a book of his called Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. It was a timely book because this was the 1960s. I started high school in 1968, which happens to be the same year that Merton died, but I didn't rediscover him until much later as I said, in the midst of my struggles to come back to the faith. A little about Merton. As I said, he was born in 1915 in France, in a place called Prague. And his father was an artist. His mother, whom he loved very much, died young. And he spent much of his life wandering emotionally, physically. In fact, his father died when he was still fairly young, and he ended up being the ward of a man here in the United States. In fact, 
he had been going to Oxford University, but he was living a wild life and probably fathered a child and so ended up coming back to the States to go to Columbia University. And it was in the United States he began his search, his further search as an agnostic toward faith. So the next book that I read when I was rediscovering him was his spiritual autobiography called The Seven-Story Mountain. It was actually written while he was a monk at Gethsemane in Kentucky, for that's where he ended up. He ended up being a monk, he ended up being a priest, and he became a very famous writer while at the same time being a monk. Now, after I read The Seven-Story Mountain, I began to read about the seven-story mountain uh, critiques, commentary, and discovered that much of the book, although incredible, beautiful, and inspiring conversion story, had been censored by his superiors at the monastery. So a lot of his actual struggles, although somewhat present in the book, were sort of glossed over. So this led me to his journals and to many others of his writing. And I discovered they're a very complicated human being, which I loved because I think most of us are complicated. And as I said earlier, I was looking for a saint who had struggled. Now, interestingly, and I think I may do a podcast on the issue of who becomes a declared saint, everyone seems to say with regard to Merton, after they talk about what a great spiritual writer he was and is, because he's still widely read, was that he probably isn't a saint. And I think part of that is not only the wildlife he led before he discovered Catholicism, became a monk, a priest, but also towards the end of his life, which was, as I said, in 1968, two things happened. He became very interested in Buddhism. He was very interested in Eastern religions, and he tended to try to harmonize both Catholicism with Zen Buddhism, which I'm going to say as an aside, I think the practices of Buddhism seem to have some relationship to Catholicism, but they're totally different in their underlying premises. So that was one thing. And he actually died while in a conference with a group of Buddhists and Catholics and other Christians, I assume. And he died of an accidental electrocution in his room after his last conference, which itself is very controversial because lots of people think that he was very depressed, etc., etc., and that it wasn't an accident. So he's the subject of conspiracy theories as well. The other reason for that is that The second thing is that he had, toward the end of his life, a relationship with a nurse when he was in hospital for an ailment, and it is said that it was a romantic relationship, although whether it was consummated or not is not clear. All I could say certainly, and can say certainly, is that his struggles and his search for grace and his acceptance of grace, where he was able to do so all helped to bring me back to the faith. 
in the 1990s, I went to a conference, I think it was at St. Monica's in uh, California here, with a writer named James Finley, also a psychotherapist, and as it happened, somebody who had, at one point, when he was a monk himself, had been at Gethsemane with Merton, and so had some insights uh, as someone who had been with him, and of someone who, I think, had been instructed by him. So he had some insight into Merton, and he had written a book called Merton's Palace of Nowhere, and I loved the book, so I wanted to see the guy. And I think at that point, the thing that I was focused on was the distinction between the authentic and the false self, and that not just from a psychological point of view, but from a spiritual point of view that God wants us to be our true authentic selves and not this thing that is merely of the world. The way I see Merton is that he always strove for the spiritual with God as a Catholic, and yet he never settled on anything. He couldn't quite stay in any one place, either physically or emotionally or even spiritually. And I kind of resonate with that, and I sometimes think that others resonate with that. So he's still kind of my guy. And it just happens, as I'm looking at my little pink book, that his prayer is the very first one that I have in it. And I want to read it to you. I think it's something that really is inspiring every single time I read it. I suppose all the things in my pink book are inspiring every time I read them. But here goes. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire, and I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death? I will not fear, for you are with me and will never leave me to face my perils alone. One of my favorite places is called the Cloisters, and it happens to be in the place I grew up called the Bronx. It's a branch of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and it basically is a building, a museum, that looks like a monastery in the middle of the Bronx, near the Spuytendijvel. One of the reasons that I'm so fond of it is that there are items, pieces, of a monastery from France called the Abbey of Saint-Michel-de-Cuxa, which is not far from Prague, where Merton was born. And so somehow, when I have been there, I have felt a sort of closeness to him, to this other traveler on the road back to God. I can't remember, as I sit here, how I became interested in Cardinal John Henry Newman. If I were to pinpoint a difference between Newman's approach to becoming Catholic and Merton's approach, I would say that Merton was more 
emotional, that a lot of things came from not only the intellectual, but also from instinct and from need. But with Newman, I'd say that it was pretty much a rational track that led to a final outburst of belief that stayed steady throughout his life despite obstacles that were presented to him. When Newman was young, up until about the age of 15, he didn't really have any steady Christian beliefs, convictions. And then at the age of 15, he had a kind of conversion and became evangelical. Although he had a progression to ultimately Catholicism through Anglicanism, he didn't jump at anything. He thought carefully through things and did a lot of reading. He was a really great intellectual. And ultimately, when he became an Anglican, he also became an Anglican priest, but felt that Anglicanism lacked something. And I guess what he thought it had too much of was a form of liberalism that accepted everything and really didn't focus on anything. He also wrote a spiritual autobiography called Apologia Prosuvita. And I'm reading now from just the introduction at page 22 in terms of his definition of the liberalism that I just referred to. He said, liberalism in religion is the doctrine that there is no positive truth in religion, but that one creed is as good as another. All are to be tolerated for all are matters of opinion. I suppose the argument would be that truth can be found, whether it be in the secular world or in the religious world, and it is not a matter of opinion. It either is or it isn't. So Newman went on a lifelong search for the truth with a capital T in faith. I take something back. I was trying to remember why I became interested in Newman at all. And this is what happened. At some point, I ran across a fairly large tome called Parochial and Plain Sermons by Newman. These were actual homilies, sermons given by him when he was at St. Mary's Church at Oxford, where he had been at college and where he became a fellow and a teacher. These sermons made while he was an Anglican are incredibly powerful. They're also beautifully written. And apparently, although he had not a very beautiful voice, he still caused the parishioners of his little church, St. Mary's, to be spellbound by his sermons. So, as had happened with my reading of Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander back when I was a kid in high school, my coming across the parochial and plain sermons set in motion my interest in Newman, and I began to read about him and of him and all the things he wrote, including the Apologia. Now, the Apologia was written in response to a debate that he had with another pastor named Charles Kingsley. Newman had been part, a significant part, of something called the Oxford Movement while he was an Anglican priest. He got into trouble because he was in these tracks that 
he and his companions, also Anglicans, had been writing to try to bring the Anglican Church back to its glory, its what he called its Catholic roots, even though he was pretty anti-Catholic and had a great dislike of the Pope. What he was trying to do is to bring some dogmatic coherence to the Anglican faith, which he felt it lacked, and a certain seriousness instead of a casualness, which he thought denominated the Anglican faith. But at some point, one of the tracts, called Tract 90, got too close to actual Catholicism for the taste of many of the Anglican comrades that he had. Kingsley did a pamphlet called, What Then Does Dr. Newman Mean?, and challenged him as to whether or not he was, as the quote goes, an apostle of untruthfulness. Well, the one thing that Newman was interested in was the truth, and so he felt the need to do his apologia and explain his road to what became a conversion to the Catholic faith, which began in part when he read the Church Fathers, whom I've mentioned before, that demonstrate whatever translations you read, that the essence of the Catholic Church, the one true holy Catholic Church, was there right after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The conversion to Catholicism cost Newman a great deal, even though he ultimately, at the very end of his life, became a cardinal of the Catholic Church. He had to leave a lot of friends behind, people who did not understand why he would forsake Anglicanism. And then the other sad truth was that people in the Catholic Church didn't trust him either. They didn't think he was really Catholic. So he never found, at least among the human beings, his home. But he found his home in the truth, which was the Catholic faith itself. I resonate with Cardinal Newman in a different way than I resonate with Thomas Merton. And I suppose the difference is that Merton is my emotional side and... Newman is my intellectual side for, although I wouldn't say that I have his capacity, I've always done enormous amounts of reading to try to find the truth of, of my faith. And so when I went to England in uh, 2013, I wanted to sort of touch some of the places that Newman had been. And there I was greatly lucky. I stood in front of the pulpit, this ornate, beautiful pulpit, from which Newman had preached his parochial and plain sermons. There was no other indication of him, and I was feeling very badly about that, and I thought, well, you know, I can understand it. St. Mary's is still an Anglican church, and so why would they give any kind of credibility to this fellow who had abandoned them? But then, as I walked around the pulpit, there was a plaque that acknowledged that from this very pulpit he had preached. The other place I really wanted to go to, well, there were two places I wanted to go to. I only got to one of them. I wanted to go to the Birmingham Oratory, which he began and at which he lived after his conversion. But there was also the place called Littlemore, which was just outside of Oxford, where he spent some years meditating on whether or not he was going to convert to Catholicism. I was very fortunate. I was able to take a bus, I believe it was a bus, 
just to the outside of Oxford to Littlemore. And I was with a friend and I thought, oh, there's going to be a lot of people here. But in fact, when we got there, it seemed like there was no one around, not even a caretaker. So I rang the bell and a young nun who was one of the, in fact, caretakers uh, said, oh, welcome. And let me come into this rather small space, but beautiful garden space that had uh, a library and that had uh, some rooms where the young men who joined Newman in meditation and contemplation of their future and Newman's actual room and the chapel that was put there at some point. I'm not sure when. The sister said, well, go ahead, sit in the chapel or look at his room and I was able to sit in this beautiful little chapel surrounded by sort of velvet curtains and at the front the altar with the saying that was his when he was a cardinal called Cor ad cor loquitur, which is heart speaks to heart. I've never had a Damascus experience and I'm actually would be afraid to have a Damascus experience like St. Paul, but I had quite a profound experience as I prayed in that little chapel all by myself and I felt a real closeness to the Cardinal and at this point he was only blessed John Henry Newman he had not yet been made a saint and and there was some issue as to whether or not he was going to be made a saint having to do with all sorts of more secular arguments than it did mean anything regarding his his holiness there were many highlights of my trip to England I love Oxford, which began to admit Catholics some years after Newman's time. And I love the fact that I could be where he was when he was actually received into the Catholic Church. For you see, it was there at Littlemore that Newman was received into the Catholic Church by Father Dominic Barbieri. And in fact, in little more there is a large standing desk which was converted into an altar at which mass was celebrated after his acceptance into the catholic church so pretty profound stuff now the prayer i'm going to read from cardinal newman saint newman as he was made a saint a couple of years ago was i thought in my pink book but it wasn't i actually had some prayer cards uh, that had the prayer on it, which I couldn't find, so I had to print it out again, and I will now put it in my pink book. So here's the prayer. I am created to do something, or to be something, for which no one else is created. I have a place in God's counsels, in God's world, which no one else has, whether I be rich or poor, despised or esteemed by man. God knows me and calls me by my name. God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me which he has not committed to another. I have a mission. I never may know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. I have a part in a great work. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place, while not intending it, 
if I do but keep his commandments and serve him in my calling. Therefore, I will trust him. Whatever, wherever I am, I can never be thrown away. If I am in sickness, my sickness may serve him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. If I am in sorrow, my sorrow may serve him. My sickness or perplexity or sorrow may be necessary causes of some great end, which is quite beyond us. He does nothing in vain. He may prolong my life. He may shorten it. He knows what he is about. He may take away my friends. He may throw me among strangers. He may make me feel desolate, make my spirit sink, hide the future from me. He still knows what he is about. I ask not to see, ask not to know. I ask simply to be used. Truth be told, I think most of my prayers are prayers of supplication to be spared. But true peace, there are moments when I really do understand this, true peace comes in just letting God do what he does, in accepting that he knows, as Father here said, what he is about. I'm not going to pretend that I do it very often, hardly at all, but I think this is the solution to everything, to my life, to many other lives. Can it be done only with God's grace and only if, in fact, I can let go and trust, which starts another issue entirely because trust doesn't come easily to any of us, certainly doesn't to me. But the one thing I can do when I am perplexed is to whip out these prayers and others that I will talk about as we move forward and just sit with them because that brief aha moment that they provide allows for a breath of fresh spiritual air and for me makes the next moment bearable. See you next week. And if you're liking these podcasts, tell your friends. Send it along on Twitter and Facebook.